All right, now, back to where did we leave off? We left off talking about, I'll take the desert. Unfortunately, that's too often true. There could be fruitfulness, and instead we choose desert. Now, sometimes the desert seems fruitful. Sometimes it seems like things are going on just fine. I know a, a common theme for me as a, as a parent of adults with other parents of adults that we pray for our adult kids in the midst of all kinds of things. But a common theme among our families, there's, there's somebody within our families that we're praying for for their spiritual walk with the Lord. That as an adult, it's not continuing in ways that we would hope. They've chosen desert. They've chosen barren instead of fruitful. And what do they need? What can be done? John chapter 3 actually speaks to that. He speaks to a man that seems like he has it all together, and yet he does not. The opening, an, an, an opening thought for this passage is, at the end of John chapter 3, we're reminded that Jesus knows what's in humanity. And then, and then God almost gives us a little bit of a glimpse. He shows us in the next two chapters. First of all, here's a man named Nicodemus. He's a teacher of Israel. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's, he's on the council, the Sanhedrin. He's a ruler in Israel. He is somebody who has societal status and position. And yet, he does not know God. He does not know the spirit of the living God. And when Jesus begins to speak of the things of the kingdom of God and God's spirit and regenerating, giving life to humanity, Nicodemus doesn't know what he's talking about. It seems somebody would look at Nicodemus and think he is living the fruitful life, and yet he's living in desert. He's living a barren life spiritually. There's a, there's a woman in chapter 4 who is living in many ways, obvious, a, a barren life in society. She's a social outcast, and, and yet, as Jesus engaged, engages with her, and reveals something of himself to her. And she runs and tells others, could this be the Messiah? And yes, it is. And so with, with the, from one end of society to the other, Jesus is coming and without shaming them, revealing himself and even shining light on where they are and what they are missing, what they are lacking so that they will know him. And that's in line with an overall, before I jump into John chapter 3, I wanted you to know two key aspects that run all through the chapter. In John chapter 3, there's, there's a particular truth that is stated over and over again in various ways. That is that Jesus is God's Son sent from heaven to come into the world to teach, to show God, so that we could, to see God's light, so that he, by uttering God's words, he could be heard, that God could be known, that Jesus is God's Son sent into the world, revealing God, speaking God's word. That is 18 times in about 36 verses in John chapter 3. Almost every other verse has something about that in it. The other parallel truth is that if, God, if Jesus is God's Son sent from heaven to show and reveal light, to, to reveal God as light in the midst of darkness, 
what is our response to that? Our response to that is God's word, God's testimony, God showing himself in Jesus is to be believed. It is to be received. His words are to be obeyed. His word to be obeyed when he says, believe on the Son and you will have life. That's, that's something we can't just, hmm, think about that. No, that's a, that's a command to obey, to believe on him and to have life because he is God's Son sent from heaven. Who else would we need to hear from? So the two sides is God is showing himself for us, not to condemn us, but that we would be saved. And that our response to that is to receive to believe on him, to believe Jesus' testimony of God and of himself and our rescue. Because you see, in John chapter 3, we, we, are, we are again looking, what do we know about God from this? And it's going to be played out in the story, but I want to tell you right up front, what we should see of God in this story, or one thing, let me say it that way, I don't want to limit myself, I don't want to limit you to something I've seen, because surely there's more. But something you should see is that God so loves us that he sent Jesus, right? He sent Jesus to clearly reveal God's rescue of us from our present condemnation to show us God's own heart for us because God's love, here it is, God's love compels him to come near to us because he seeks to rescue, not to condemn. Now, I don't know if you've been hung up here at times or sometime in the past or, or maybe even at present, that sometimes it feels like God comes, comes near, God shines light, and you are convicted. You feel guilt. You feel shame. And it's like God's light is coming to condemn you to bring guilt. But God's light in Jesus, doesn't come to condemn. We're already condemned. We have been condemned since the garden. Humanity has been lost in its own rebellion in the desert from God, and God has come near to us. God so loves us that he is compelled to come near to where we are for us, not to condemn us, but to rescue us. We often have in our thinking that God is condemning. Or you certainly know people who have that, that picture of God in their minds that God is condemning. God will judge them. The truth is they are already living under the plight of condemnation. And God's heart longs to rescue them out of that. So much that he sent his son so that whoever Ever believes in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life, would not be in that barren desert, but would be in God's kingdom garden of fruitfulness, already tasted in this life and lived in, as we, as we stated in Psalm 145, lived in and lived out forever and ever. Okay. John chapter 3, with that in mind, God's love so for us compels him to come near. Let's look into John chapter 3. 
Start from verse 1. What I'm going to do this time around, I'm going to read and kind of comment as we go to try to pull the story together for us, and we'll make some conclusions out of that. Father, as we enter your word again, Lord, would you speak, even as we sang, even as we prayed? Speak, O Lord. This is your word to us. Father, not my thoughts, but your word. Lord, not my ambition, but Lord, your purpose in the lives of your people and those who are here this morning. Father, not, not my reputation, but Lord, your glory in Jesus who has come to save. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 3, verse 1. I'm going to be reading um, in the ESV, and if you use the church Bible in front of us, you'll, you'll find it in page 887, I think, 887 to 888. John chapter 3 and verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man, Nick, he came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. No one can do these signs you do unless God is with him. Nick, Nick comes along. He's a nice enough guy. He's not being combative. He's not like some of the other Pharisees that have, that have challenged Jesus openly. No, he comes off to the side. He comes at, he comes at night and he says, you know, we know which is telling. They are, they are confronting, resisting openly, but Nicodemus, he's, he's speaking for somebody besides himself, and he's speaking, he's a ruler of the Jews, he's, he's part of the ruling council, he's a leading teaching Pharisee in Israel. There are others in the inner circle who know, even as they're resisting. We know that you are. There, there, is often, there is often truth that is known even as it is actively resisted. In fact, there are times when God's truth is resisted most aggressively because it is known. And I don't like it. And I'm resisting it. We know that you are a teacher. <laughs> it sounds very courteous. He sounds very polite. Uh, it's, it's surprising to me that Jesus really won't have any of it. Jesus is not impressed. God is not impressed by nice here. God is not impressed by open-mindedness. In fact, God, is not, God doesn't want you to have an open mind about who Jesus is. God intends for us to have a focused faith on who Jesus is. When it comes to Jesus and eternal life, God intends to be very narrow-minded. Life is in him only. There is no other way. We've got no other offer. We've got nothing else that we can bring. But God so loves, his love compels him to come near to us, to rescue in Christ. So Jesus confronts right away. Jesus answers him and said, he leaves off the niceties and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, what is Nicodemus going to do to that? Nicodemus doesn't know what he's talking about. To be born again is also to be born from above, to be born of God, to be born of heaven. Well, the only birth Nicodemus knows about is the one he had a long, long time ago because he seems to be an old-timer here. Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born again? Nicodemus, like us, is looking at the situation in human terms. He's looking at life and its problem, and how can we manage that? How can we fix this in human terms? 
And there is no human solution for this. There is no human rescue for this. But that's all he's got. That's his framework. You know, we often, just as an aside, we, we often ask God not for too much but too little. We ask God to manage some social or cultural change. God, if we could just get morality back in the culture, that would be enough. God, if we would just have some godly leaders who know you, that would turn the whole nation around and we'd be a moral people by some sense of standard. And that would get none of them into the kingdom of God. You must be born again. Jesus is asking of Nicodemus much more than Nicodemus is expecting. No, you can't enter into your mother's womb again. This born again, so Jesus explains it further in verse 5. Unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Don't marvel. Don't be misunderstanding that I said to you, you must be born again. Now, when Jesus says, when when Nicodemus is confused, what does that mean to be born again? And, and Jesus says, must be born of water and the Spirit. What does that mean? It could mean, as Nicodemus understands, though I have this physical birth. And a person can't be physically born again. A person can only be physically born once. And as somebody pointed out to me in between the services, once you're born, you cannot be unborn. There's a physical birth, and then there is a spiritual birth. So maybe the water as Nicodemus, because Jesus answers him, he says, flesh is flesh and spirit is spirit. So maybe the water refers to the fleshly birth, the physical birth, as that child within the mother's womb is encased, safeguarded in water. And then there's a spiritual birth. Maybe that's it. That certainly fits the immediate context. Some people want to suggest, well, John... In chapter 1, talked about, I baptize you with water. There's one coming who's going to baptize with spirit. There is water baptism, and then there is, there's also the spiritual rebirth. There is repentance, a calling on God, a need, calling on God for cleansing that was in John's baptism. And then there is a receiving God's forgiveness in being born again. I could go with that. In fact, the chapter closes again with a mention that Jesus is baptizing and John is baptizing, some discussion around that. But some people take that idea, well, baptism's in that water. So if a person is not baptized in water and believing in Jesus, then they're not saved. You're saved by believing in Jesus and being baptized. And if you put them in parallel that way, Jesus, Jesus would be downplaying the baptism. In saying that no one is saved unless they're born of the Spirit. Unless they're born again. By believing in Jesus being born of the Spirit. But I think the water and Spirit are tying together something. Because he, he's, telling, he's telling Nicodemus, he says, when Nicodemus says, well, I don't understand these things. How can these things be? Jesus says, you're the teacher of Israel. You don't know these things? Verse 10. Verse 11, I say to you, we speak of what we know. And if I've told you earthly things in verse 12 and you don't believe, how do you believe I tell you heavenly things? He's talking about earthly things and heavenly things. There are earthly things that God had taught Israel that were to convey to them heavenly things. The land that they lived in. It wasn't all about the land. The kingdom of God is much bigger than merely that land of Israel. That was an earthly thing to teach them a heavenly thing, but they missed it. 
And even that barren land that I showed you earlier, just to, well, we don't need to put those slides up again, but those slides of the barren land versus the fruitful land, granted the fruitful land was here, was here in the Willamette Valley instead, but there are beautiful places like the Sorek Valley in, uh, in Israel, beautiful garden areas when the rains come and when the streams and rivers flow. Otherwise, it's barren desert. And yet God says his word is going to come and his spirit is going to come like water in the desert, like Streams in the desert. Desert streams ministry. Have you heard of that? There it is. And God does that in the midst of desert when his rain comes. And the rain means more than water. Look at Isaiah 44 and verse 3. I put it up here just so, to save us time turning back and forth. Isaiah 44 verse 3. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant. Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Jeshurun is a, is a term of endearment. It means upright one. God sometimes uses that term for Israel. It's in contrast here to Jacob. Jacob is the deceiver. My, de my deceiver servant, my, the upright one whom I have chosen. There's a contrast between what Israel can do for, for herself versus what God does in choosing Israel for himself. God changes them. I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. What does he mean? I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Just like when water pours out on thirsty ground, then it bears fruit. Then it can blossom. Then the seeds can germinate and bring forth that wonderful lush green that we get plenty of around here. That's what the Spirit does within a life. So when there is barrenness in a life, what is needed is the Spirit. And the funny thing is that barrenness looks a couple different ways. Sometimes that barrenness looks like very destructive behavior activity in life. Sometimes that barrenness plays out in satisfying oneself's longing and heart in what looks like great worldly success. In John chapter 4, you're going to see the barrenness in, in destructive choices in life. A life seemingly ruined in, in, in the scandal of the community. In John chapter 3, we see that barrenness in a man of society, a man of position and standing. Our friend Nicodemus. It can look either way. And yet still be the same barrenness apart from God's Spirit bearing fruit within the life, apart from the Spirit of the living God who comes by faith in Jesus. He says, you're the teacher of Israel. You don't understand the things of the new covenant. You don't realize that the kingdom of God is much bigger than driving the Romans out and cleaning up temple corruption. The, the kingdom of God on earth is God dwelling with his people in reconciled, harmonious relationship because his people are again of one heart and mind with him. Why? Because he has done that in drawing them to himself, of rescuing them from their barrenness, barrenness and putting within them a new heart the Spirit's heart that rejoices in their God forever and ever because that's what God has worked in them. So he says, in explaining 
earthly things, you don't understand it. How can I tell you heavenly things? There's no one else to tell you. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended, the Son of Man. Nobody else can tell you God's truth except God's Son who came from heaven. That's one of those 18 occurrences where that comes forward. He's the one we must hear. He's the one we must listen to and believe and respond to. What am I going to do with what Jesus says about how can I be right with God? There's nobody else to listen to. There's nowhere else to go. And then he explains it this way, another Old Testament illustration. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. He explains that in verse 16, that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Well, what did he send the Son to do? He sent the Son to be lifted up. He sent the Son to be lifted up how? In what way? To be, to be honored and exalted? No, he sent the Son to be lifted up in the same way that this serpent in the wilderness was lifted up. That leaves us running back to the Old Testament again. How was the serpent in the wilderness lifted up? And it's important that the serpent in the wilderness. It's an important part of the story. Let me take just probably three minutes to tell the story. Back in Numbers chapter 21... Israel, after 38 years in the wilderness, not entering the land because they did not believe God's promise. And so they were turned away at the gate and turned back. And that generation wandered until that generation that rejected God's promise, until they had all died in the wilderness. And their children, whom they accused God of bringing out here to die in this wilderness, their children would now enter the land. It's 38 years later. And they are right on the southern end. They are on the southern foothills, just to the east of Beersheba, at the northern end of what's called the Negev, the south kind of wildernessy area. And in the foothills there, that's where there's just a little bit of fruitfulness again. And there's a Canaanite king there that attacks them. Terrible guy. And God says, I'm going to give you victory over this king, but you need to trust me. And when I give you this victory, then devote his cities, devote what he has, not to yourselves, but devote it to me. You trust me. That sounds a lot like Jericho later. It's the same kind of thing. And they do. God gives them the victory, and they devote it to him. And they're right there on the, on the edge of the promised land. All they got to do is go north. And Moses leads them south, back towards the wilderness, and they go further south into what's called the Arabah. It's the dry desert south of the Dead Sea. If you can imagine something more barren than the Dead Sea era, area, that's the Arabah south of the Dead Sea. And that's where they lead them into that barren wilderness. And they say, what the hey, God? We did what you said. We were right on the edge. And now you got us going back in the wilderness again. Eating this manna again. You know, the man, we're tired of the manna thing, God. Why aren't you treating us right? They were grumbling again against God and not believing his goodness. God is withholding the same lie that was believed in the garden as was told by the what? The serpent. And so in the midst of their grumbling, God sends a whole bunch of fiery serpents, poisonous, venomous, deadly vipers that, that, that are all among them and they're biting them. And guess what? When the serpent bites you, what happens? You die. 
And so in the midst of being bitten and people dying, they call out to Moses, Moses, pray to God for us. And Moses prays to God, and God says, Moses, do this. Make yourself a bronze serpent. So, I mean, people are being bitten and dying, and Moses is supposed to go off into the tool shed over there and start working on this. So Moses makes a bronze serpent. It probably wasn't really pretty. It was probably a pretty ugly thing because he puts this together really, really quick because people are dying. And he puts it, and God says, lift that up on a pole and tell the people, anybody who looks at that object, that thing like a serpent lifted up on a pole, anybody who looks at that will live. Well, they're dying. Why would they look at a, a, a thing on a pole? Only because they believe God. Because that's what God said to do. And those who looked on the serpent lived. Now, Jesus says, as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, what's going on there? God is not saying, okay, you guys acted out, so now I'm judging you. They weren't bit by the serpent there in the wilderness. You say, what? I thought that was in the... They were bit by the real serpent. I'm talking the wrong way. The the future's over there, the past. They were bit by the serpent. The past is this way. They were bit by the serpent way over here a long time ago, back with Adam and Eve. And they're living in that being serpent bit and under that death and condemnation and rebellion against God ever since. And it's played out in the wilderness, and the wilderness just causes it to surface again. And so God sends the serpents to remind them of what the issue is And then he lifts the serpent up on a pole. And as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. The Son of Man, God's Son, sent from heaven to earth, the one and only Son of God, the perfect, sinless Son of God, God in humanity, will take our guilt and sin upon himself. Everything that that serpent represents of our guilt, our sin, our rebellion, that we were led into by the serpent of old, Jesus takes all of that upon his perfect self. And he who knew no sin, the Bible says, was made sin for us. But when he hangs on that cross, when he's lifted up, it is not honored and exalted, he is lifted up on a cross, and there he dies a horrid, shameful death in our place. That's how he's lifted up. God so loves us. His love compels us to come near. Even near to be condemned himself and his son in order to rescue you and I. That's what's going on with the serpent in the wilderness. Because God so loved the world that he sent his only son. That whoever believes in him would not perish as you are perishing, but will have eternal life. Verse 17. Don't read verse 16 without verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him would be saved, rescued. We often think God is a condemning God. God is a judging God. People around you whom you talk to about faith in Jesus, they think your God is just full of judgment and condemnation. But your God is full of rescue and salvation. They are already guilty and condemned. And they know it, and God knows it. They don't need condemnation from God. They are already condemned. They are already spiritually dead. The thing they need from God is life. And that's the thing that God brings in Jesus. 
That's the thing that Nicodemus needs. Next chapter, that's the thing that the woman at the well needs. They're no different, though in society they look very different. One has it all together. One's got nothing together. And they both have the same need, and his name is Jesus. The one, whoever, verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because they've not believed in the name of the Son of God. Light is coming to the world. Light, the light is opportunity. The light is the light of rescue. And people will flee from it or people will grab hold. And he's telling Nicodemus, grab hold. Two things that cause for light in this world or cause life in this world on earthly things, one of them is water. You, in fact, are 70% water, I'm told. Some of you, maybe it's running down to 69%, 68 You need to take another drink. We need water for life, and we need light for life. Try one of those kids' gardening experiments where you, where you try to grow something in darkness. It doesn't work. Light is coming to the world. Humanity loves darkness rather than light. How does anybody come? Because our loving God chases us down. Why? Because his love compels him. His love for us compels him to come near to us to rescue us, not condemn us. How does the chapter end? We'll cut to the chase. We'll, we'll move through to the very closing verses of the chapter. Verse 31, it is summarized this way. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. But he who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. He, the one who came from above, God's son, is the one who can tell us about heaven, is the one who can tell us about God. And yet no one receives his testimony. But whoever receives his testimony sets his seal on this, that God is true. You are believing God concerning his son, Jesus. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son, has given all things into the Son. Here it is, the punchline, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains, continues, as it always has been since the garden, even till now. There's not a person living that doesn't need God's rescue. And one of the reasons they might hide is thinking God's just going to judge me. You're already under judgment. God is the one who would rescue you. We need to recalibrate our thinking. In terms of knowing God from John chapter 3, we need to recalibrate our thinking from thinking of God as waiting to judge to thinking of God as wanting, intending to rescue. We're already judged. Now, how does that work for you and I who are saved already? You, you, you said, I, I believed in Jesus. I know Jesus as my Savior. And yet, there's some guilt lingers around in here, isn't there? There's some shame that lingers around in here. That I, what do I do with that? Because it easily causes me to withdraw, to pull back from the light. God will reveal to me, God will point out to me some guilt, some shame. And what's his purpose? Is his purpose there to push me back a little bit? I'm getting a little too, thinking a little too comfortable or something, and God pushes me back a little bit again? No. 
God exposes that thing. He shines the light a little further into the corner. He exposes that thing. Why? So that I will take that thing too and lay it there at the cross of Jesus. Jesus died for my guilt, for my shame. And Jesus died for that too. Jesus died for the self-serving that I still have. Jesus died for the guilty inconsideration that I still harbor. Jesus died for the jealous or envy that I have toward another. Jesus died for that too. I easily think that those are the things that I need to hide from him. But there's nothing I need to hide from him. Why? Because God's not waiting around to judge me. God's love for you, for me, for us, compels him to come near, not to shame us and guilt us, but to rescue us and give us his life. I want to close in prayer. And as I invited you earlier, as we, as we receive this morning's offering, that that's a time that we give back in worship. That's a time that we can give in terms of what is in my heart that I give back to him. What burden am I carrying that I give to him? We have those communication cards. We could receive them anyway, anywhere. We receive them in the offering because this is my act of worship, trusting this to my God. And so also... Whatever, whatever we do in service, summer of service, vacation Bible camp, this is my response in worship to a God who so loves me and gives me his life to give to the people around me. And that thing that is still in me, it is worship to him to confess it. And trust him, believe him. God, I believe you concerning Jesus that when I confess my sin, you are faithful and just to forgive my sin and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness over and over again. So if there's light that shines on something, let's lift that up too. Let's trust that to the cross of Jesus. Let's pray.